You're listening to a podcast from Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, whose mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. The journey here and all the things that I thought I was going to be doing as opposed to what I'm actually doing and uh, we were just kind of sharing stories, and, uh, and afterwards, I was just struck by the, the sheer grace of God on my life in the midst of the mess of my life, you know? Uh, there's, there's, no, there's no point, I, I know in my story, there's no point that I can claim like, hey, I really knew what I was doing, you know? Like, I, I, had a, I, I knew exactly where I was going, exactly how I was going to get there, it really was a, just a journey of, of walking daily with God. And then when I think back on it, I don't know if this is true for you guys, but for me, some of the greatest things that have happened in my life are things that were completely outside of my control. Uh, and that actually brings me a lot of peace, knowing that God can do these really great things, uh, and I don't have to be in control. That's something that should lead us to worship. You know, when you, when, you, when you think about it, that's really the story of, of the Bible. Uh, God being in control over a bunch of people who were never really in control, you know? Uh, it's a pretty messy story. You know, you can't read the, the Bible and say, man, those people knew what they were doing, right? They're just a great example of having, having it all planned out. You know, it was more just like, you know, literally, let's just walk. We're going to walk this path with God, trusting in Him. I can only see so far at a time, and He's going to provide for us. Uh, you think about just some of the characters that God uses in, uh, in His story. You know, I was thinking about Adam. Um, this thing decided to stop working. I was thinking about Adam and Eve. And, you know, I mean, I think one of their greatest character defects right from the beginning is they just didn't trust God. You know, they didn't trust that he was going to provide for them. They didn't trust that he was going to meet their needs. Uh, And so they had to blame other people. Or you think about uh, Noah, right? I mean, Noah was a bit of a drunkard, right? How about Abraham? Well, the guy was kind of a creative liar, right? Well, okay, um, how about David? Oh, man, he was an adulterer. And then you get into the New Testament, and the, the ragtag group of people that Jesus decides to surround himself with, they're the same way. They can't exactly claim to know exactly what's going on. You know, Peter was kind of quick to run off his mouth. You know, Thomas, the doubter. Judas was a thief and wound up betraying Jesus. And so all in all, when you think about it, I mean, Jesus had a pretty ragtag group of followers. None of the disciples came from prominent places or prominent families. Most of them came from the poorer section around Galilee. They were impulsive, temperamental, easily offended, and they had a lot of the same biases as their environment. But what makes them so unique is they had met God. They had met the incarnate God, and as they walked with God, he used them to do really amazing things that we get to read about in the New Testament. See, I just, I love that. 
I love that God chooses to use messy people. And and that's kind of what we're going to be looking at today in our text in John chapter 12. John, in chapter 12, he makes this really interesting statement in verse 16. And and he's actually said this several times. Uh, But he says in verse 16, And his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done and had been done to him. Isn't that a funny statement? Well, <laughs> who's John talking about there? Himself, like he's in that group. It's so funny the way that he wrote, he, write, he writes that. And his disciples did not understand these things at first. It should say, and we did not understand these things at first. But it wasn't until after the resurrection, you know, that John's kind of looking back and he's making all these connections. So they really didn't understand all of what God was doing at the time. And we tend to just see that over and over and over again. But see, here's why John's writing his letter, because he wants his readers to now make those connections. He wants them to know who Jesus was. He wants them to know exactly why he came, because he knows how prone they still are to, you know, just being religious, but not really understanding who Jesus was. So he's writing this letter. He wants them to believe. He wants them to know that Jesus is offering abundant life. It's why we've called this series Kingdom Living. It's because we want to do exactly what John was writing this book about. We want to know who Jesus was. We want to know who Jesus is. And we want to know what it means to be a follower of his and have this abundant life, what it looks like to live in the kingdom. And so I'm just enjoying this journey in the book of John. Uh, I hope you guys are using the journals that we handed out. We've had some great uh, family Bible studies together. Um, We picked Fridays to be like family Bible study day. So we're just picking a a chapter at a time as our family and say, okay, read this chapter. And then Friday morning, we're all going to get together and talk about it. And it's been so cool to pick up these themes of John that God uses messy people to accomplish his purpose. So today, we're going to look at another one of those stories. It's in John 12, 1 through 8. It's a story of, G, of a Mary anointing Jesus' feet. And, uh, and as usual, Jesus is the only one in the story who actually knows what's going on. And everybody else is just kind of like fumbling around in the dark for the most part. So I want to invite you guys to stand up. Uh, Megan is going to uh, kindly volunteer to read for us this morning. She's going to read John chapter 12, 1 through 8, and it's going to be up here on the screen if you don't have your Bible. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, uh, once again, uh, we just want to 
hear from you and learn from you. We want to look at the life of Jesus, uh, what he models in this text, but also what his life meant to represent. I just pray as we do that once again, we just find hope and encouragement in your plan and what you're doing. We ask this in your name. Amen. You guys have a seat. So in our text, Jesus has come back to Bethany, uh, where Lazarus had been raised from the dead. Now, this is significant because Jesus left Bethany because the religious leaders had decided that it was time to kill him. And he had told the religious leaders toward the end of chapter 11, they say, hey, by the way, if, if anybody sees Jesus, please let us know. We would like to kill him. So then why would Jesus come back to Bethany? Bethany's only two miles outside of Jerusalem. It's a place where he's really well known. On top of that, the text says that this is almost Passover. So you would have had tens of thousands of people flooding into Jerusalem through this small town. So why would Jesus take this risk? Why would he go back to a place where a group of people are looking to murder him? And it's because Jesus has no desire to leave this area alive. This now, in the, in the Gospel of John, starts the, the crucifixion narrative, where Jesus is now, he's back in Bethany, he, he, Jerusalem's right there, and he's heading to the cross. And the rest of the Gospel of John will take us through the crucifixion narrative. So here's what happens in the story that Megan just read. They go into the house of Lazarus and Martha and Mary. So this is a family, brothers and sisters. And Jesus is very close to his family. He's eaten several meals with them before. He had raised Lazarus from the dead, which is pretty significant, right? So they are reclined at a table. Uh, Imagine a low table. They would be sitting around it, laying on their side with their feet out behind behind them. That's kind of how they ate meals together. Uh, I know the, the Last Supper shows Jesus, you know, standing at a table with all of his disciples beside him. It's not historically accurate. They would have sat around the table laying down. That's how they ate their meals. Um, We don't know what they're talking about, but they're having some type of conversation. I would imagine that Lazarus' resurrection was a pretty big topic. You know, it'd be kind of a fun one, conversation around dinner time that was pretty fresh on everybody's mind. At the same time as this conversation's going on, dinner's going on, there's there's an elephant in the room, okay? And it's a growing tension between these two sisters, Mary and Martha. Now, Martha is a, is a servant. She is cooking as she always did. She's, she's serving her meals. Every time we kind of see Martha, it's kind of what she's doing uh, in, the, uh, in the gospel accounts. But to understand the, the, the full dynamic of that, you'll have to look at a, another passage of Scripture. It was over in Luke 10 to understand the Mary and Martha dynamic. So in Luke 10... Uh, Luke records a story of a different time when they were at this same family's house and they're having a meal together. And once again, Martha says she's running around like crazy. She's cooking, she's serving. Well, where do we find Mary in Luke chapter 10? She's sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him teach like all the other disciples would be, which I think is pretty cool that she is right there with all of the disciples. I mean, Mary really was a disciple of Jesus. She was right there at his feet, listening to him with all the other disciples. Well, that really irritates Martha in Luke chapter 10. And she goes to Jesus and she says, you know, kind of exasperated, Jesus, will you not tell Mary to get up and help? Because that's kind of what we're expected to do. And I'm the one that's doing all the work. And uh, Jesus rebukes Mary. 
And he tells her, I don't want you to be anxious and be troubled because Mary has chosen the right thing. Okay? So you can just feel the tension between these two sisters, right? You've already had that happen. I don't know how well Martha took that. But now what John decides to say is Martha served. That's the only thing that he includes in this section of text. But the fact that he even chose to point it out means that there's still a tension in this family. So Martha's serving. Where do we find Mary? Once again, we find Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. Okay? This time, what Mary does is she gets up. She leaves the room. She comes back. She takes what it says, a pound of pure nard. And she anoints Jesus' feet and wipes them with her hair. So nard was a a very expensive perfume. uh, And it was meant to be used sparingly on the head. That's kind of what you would do with nard. Uh, It comes from a plant that's grown in India. uh, And we know later in the text that it cost uh, 300 denarii, which is about one year's worth of wages. Okay? So imagine if the average you know, family income here in Portland is about $60,000. Mary went and grabbed a $60,000 bottle worth of perfume and began to dump it out on the feet of Jesus. So this is not $60,000 perfume, by the way. But it does smell really good. Uh, and I need some volunteers. Is there anybody that would mind me giving them a little spritz? Probably better if you are a female because you're going to smell like one after you stick out your wrist. And we'll just, just do one, okay? Is that good? Anybody else want to spritz? Can I spritz you, Shanti? Okay. No? No spritzing? Joanne will take a spritz. No? Anybody else want to spritz over here? Houston? You want to smell like, no? Not going to happen? I need somebody in the middle to be spritzed. Okay. Nate, not going to spritz you. Anybody else over here? Any volunteers? No? Clarence, you want to get spritzed? Okay. Thank you, Angie. Girls, no? No spritzing? Thank you. Okay. Can you guys smell that around you? Can you lean over to the person next to you and give it a little sniff? So, it says that she dumps out a pound of perfume and the whole place all of a sudden smells like this perfume. And, and I wonder if the first thing that people ever noticed was actually the smell, right? So they're all kind of eating a meal together and they've got their feet out behind them. They're not really paying attention. And sure, Martha's around there. And, and we find out that outside there's like a whole crowd of people. So there's a lot going on. All of a sudden you, you just get overwhelmed with this with this smell. And everybody kind of stops and says, what, what's going on? And they turn and look, and Mary is there. She's dumped out, you know, $60,000 worth of perfume. And now she's taking, she lets her hair down, and she begins to wipe the feet of Jesus with her hair. Okay? At this point in the story, there's this implied gasp. Partly because they realized the expense of what she just did, but also the fact that she let her hair down is not something that a woman in the Middle East would do in a room full of men. That's something you would do in front of your husband. But she lets down her hair, and she she begins to wipe the feet of Jesus. So this is the point in the story that you would assume Martha has had enough, 
right? She's officially like done with Mary's antics. And she's coming at her with like a wooden cooking spoon for the embarrassment and the foolishness of what she just did. But it's not her that chimes in, which is really interesting. It's Judas. He's the one that actually chimes in in the story. And Judas says, you know, would it not have been better for this perfume to be sold and giving to the poor? Well, John is the author. He adds some authorial bias into the account. And he tells us, uh, yeah, to his readers, he's like, and and by the way, Judas, that's the one that's going to betray Jesus. And by the way, he was also a thief. He used to help himself to the disciples' money. So Judas was the uh, kind of the treasurer for the disciples. He held all of their money. Come to find out, he had been helping himself. So we learn that Judas's motivations are not altruism, but he wants to. He would have liked to sell that perfume and had had access to all of those funds to help himself. Okay, so all of these dynamics are going on in the room, right? Well, Jesus chimes in here toward the end of the section in verse seven, and Jesus says, "Leave her alone." so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Once again, Jesus is the only one in the room who truly understands what's going on right now. I just thought it was really interesting as I read this story, just thinking about everybody's motives for being there. You know, Martha's probably over there rolling her eyes at Mary, Judas is sitting there being greedy. The disciples are just so taken back that a woman will let her hair down in public. And then we find out that outside of the room, the home is surrounded by a group of people who want to kill Jesus. And just imagine that, what it means to be in that moment, to be Jesus in that moment particularly. And Jesus calms everybody down and he says, look, there will always be time to minister to the poor, I'm only here for a short while, and Mary seems to be the only one who actually gets that in the story. I just found it really interesting that the people who were the closest to Jesus didn't even really get what was going on, like his 12 disciples. But it was Mary who saw that. And as I was just kind of thinking about that this week and thinking about what John was getting at and what Jesus was getting at, I just wonder, you know, how many times we, we get busy doing, having all of these motives, all of these things that we want to do, and we just miss out on this amazing thing that Jesus is trying to do for us, you know? This amazing work that he's trying to do. And, and we think that oh, I gotta I gotta stay busy. You know, I think some of us probably naturally fall into the category of Martha's. You know, I think we just gotta run around and as long as we're busy, as long as we're doing something, then we feel good about ourselves, and as long as people are affirming us. But if we're not busy and we ever slow down, then we just don't have any worth anymore. Or maybe we find ourselves like Judas, where we're trying to look good on the outside. But in reality, what we're really trying to do is just serve ourselves. We're just trying to provide for ourselves. But I think John really wants us to focus on Mary here. Mary doesn't really care about what anybody else thinks about her. She seems to be the only one who's genuinely serving Jesus. Now, she doesn't realize 
that her actions have so much greater implications. She's still quite oblivious. I mean, she's anointing the feet of Jesus. She poured, a, she poured enough of the perfume out that could have been used for a whole body in, a, in, in burial. So there's definitely symbolism there of Jesus going to the cross. And Jesus says, let's not, let's not rebuke her. And by the way, Mary, you may want to hang on to some of that because you're going to need it in a really short amount of time for the rest of my body. But I think John really wants us to, and Jesus even affirming Mary's decision once again, wants us to kind of focus on her motivations. You know, Mary took a huge risk of of being ostracized socially, for one thing, by taking her hair down. Think about the the family dynamic between like like, uh, Martha and Lazarus and, and her you know, we don't know where she got $60,000 worth of perfume from. They don't seem to be a really wealthy family. So maybe it was like a family heirloom. That's one of the thoughts that they had had for a long time that was meant to be for somebody's burial at some point. So can you imagine the dynamic that that could have created inside of their family of her just making this decision to honor Jesus in this way? But she, she risked something. And, and, I, and I think it's when we risk, God loves for us to be in that place because it's in risk that God can show up and do things. And, and to be honest, I think, I think probably most of us play life way too safe. And we're just not willing to risk anything for God. Like I said, when I think back on the greatest things that ever happened in my life, there were things that I risked. And it was in the risk that God got all the glory because I couldn't do that thing. And God loves for us to be there. He loves for us to risk. He loves for us to, to, to follow him with our heart and not just with our, you know, duty, you know? Mary was willing to be undignified. And in being undignified, she, she worshiped God. She got it. That word undignified reminds me of a song by Matt Redman. If you were into pop culture, worship music in the late 90s, early 2000s, Matt Redman had a song called Undignified. Anybody? Show of hands? No? Okay, two of us were in church in the 90s. Uh, it was one of those, like, like I, was, I was a youth pastor in 99. Um, it was one of those, like, dancing around songs that you would do in youth ministry. It goes, I will dance, I will sing to be mad for my king. Nothing, Lord, is hindering this passion in my soul. And I'll become even more undignified than this. Some would say it's foolishness, but I'll become even more undignified. Come on, Danielle, I mean you. Dignified than this. <laughs> I remember being at like, a, like conferences and dancing around, being undignified because that's what we thought that was all about. The worship leader would be like, don't care about what anybody thinks, just dance. Uh, what that song is actually written of, off of is a passage of Scripture in 2 Samuel, and it was something that King David said. So uh, the Ark of the Covenant had been stolen, and King David and 30,000 men go, and they get the Ark of the Covenant back. And really, God gets the Ark of the Covenant back, but they're bringing it back in, and David is wearing his soldier's outfit. He's got his linen epid, I think is what they call it. He was wearing the priestly thing at the time, but it's just a short robe, you know, because when you're a soldier, you want to be able to run, so you didn't, you know, wear your long robes when you were soldiering. Well, what's the danger of being a guy wearing a short 
you know, skirt and having no underwear on. And you begin to dance. It could get undignified pretty quickly, right? So David is coming in with the Ark of the Covenant and 30,000 men, and he's leaping for joy, and he's being undignified at the same time. Well, one of his wives that was given to him by Saul wasn't one that he chose, uh, and, and she seems to be quite a, a pain uh, uh, in his undignifiedness. Uh, she, when he gets back, she says, uh, what does she say to David? She says, um, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Well, David's response to her is, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from this house who appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. Because he didn't care what people thought about him. He wasn't the king so that he could have notoriety. He was doing it because God chose him to do it. And there was just a boldness that came along with that. So that just reminded me of what Mary did. She was undignified before God, and she was probably criticized for being undignified. But it was in that moment of being undignified that God just, just, she had this amazing display of who God really is. She followed her heart and didn't care what anybody thought about her. And, and that really made me wonder, when was the last time I did anything undignified for God? Like, when was the last time you truly risked something that was outside of your control, having no idea what the consequence would be? Or do you tend to play it safe, you know? As I was thinking about that in my own life, I'm not a very risky person. I don't think I'm a very risky person. Some of you may think I'm a very risky person. I don't think I'm a very risky person. Jamie and I are planners, you know? We've just learned to don't plan too far because you just never know what God's going to do. But a couple of years ago, uh, we had an opportunity to risk something, and it was Jamie going to Uganda. Uh, She came to me and said, I think God wants me to go to Uganda. And I'm like, that is not a part of the plan that we have had up until this point. You know, that was never on the radar for us. And of course, you know, my first question, how much is it going to cost if you go to Uganda? And she's like, it's going to cost like $3,000. And I was like, Jamie, there is no way that we are going to be able to come up with $3,000. And at the time, the girls were still pretty young. And I'm like, I'm going to have the kids for a couple of weeks. You know, how are we going to do this? There's just no way it's going to happen. And and I was like the Judas. I'm like, Jamie, can't those funds be used for better reasons? Can't we just send them some money and you stay here? But she really felt like God was leading her to do that. And so I was like, okay. And sure enough, man, the money came just like that. It was amazing where it came from. And it came in such a short amount of time. It was just like all the money was there. I was like, Wow that's pretty cool. So then a year or two passes by and she, she wants to go back and she says, hey, I'd like for you to come to Uganda with me. And I'm like, Jamie, there is no way that we are going to come up with $5,000 to go to Uganda. And sure enough, right? Last summer, we were able to go to Uganda. $5,000. I could never wrap my mind around coming up with that much money that wasn't like in the budget, right, to go. It's just amazing. Well, this next summer, 
we're taking what we feel is the biggest risk that we've taken is we're going to take our girls with us to Uganda. And this time, I'm not saying God can't come up with $8,000 because he already has come up with $8,000 over the last trip, the two trips. I've just seen him do it, right? I don't know where it's going to come from. You know, I, I don't know how God's going to provide. You know, there's safety issues. It's just not wise. It's not wise to take your teenage girls to impoverished countries that have disease and where people get kidnapped. You know, it's, it's just not wise, but it's something God's asked us to do. Now, I'm not trying to place our convictions on you guys. Like, I'm not, it's not that everybody has to go to Uganda, but I want you to risk something because it's in the risk that we can't take any credit for the outcome. And God gets to step in and do these amazing works. So let's be reckless. Paul calls it foolishness in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 26. It says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. It sounds like the disciples, doesn't it? God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I told you guys that story, not because I'm boasting in myself. I'm boasting in the Lord. That's something that God did. Because when you think about it, Jesus modeled the most recklessness. He was willing to be the most undignified so that the Father could be honored and so that we could have access to God. So we can live risky, reckless lives for God and for his purposes because it's in that moment that I believe God wants to come in and do something amazing. So you guys have an opportunity here to come and receive communion. Tim's going to come back up here and it's going to lead us in, a, in another set of worship. And as we come to the tables, I want you guys to, to remember we have these beautiful smelling fragrant flowers here and, and we all hopefully smell like perfume. You know, remember the act of what Mary did and just the authenticity of her heart. And as we come to the tables, we remember that something reckless was done for us so that we then could follow this this amazing God on this amazing journey of Him using us in amazing ways if we will just be obedient to risk So let's spend some time now. Let's worship our God. Let's remember this story, this grand narrative of all the times that God's provided of thousands and thousands of years of God accomplishing his good purposes. But I want to leave you guys with this thought. John said in that passage, in in, in verse 16, that the disciples didn't understand all of what was going on. Right? They didn't understand all of what was going on and what Jesus was doing. It wasn't until after the crucifixion that they finally put the pieces together. See, we are so blessed that we now get to live even after that point in God's redemptive plan. 
not only do we get to see all of the Old Testament, all of what God did through these really messy people leading up to Jesus and the crucifixion and the establishment of the church, but we also, we know how the story ends. And when you know how a story ends, you can live recklessly because God has everything in control. So let's worship that God. Let's worship the God who has showed us exactly how the story ends. And let's live now like Mary, an abundant life. Let's do that together. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the, the beautiful mess that is your redemptive work in the life of your people in the past and in the present today. Thank you for your redemptive nature that you do make all things beautiful. Uh, and Father, you know what's going on in each of our lives. You know the, the hardships that we're under. You're a good, good Father that cares about us. You're a God that's close to us. But you also know our tendency when things get hard to try to control, to try to provide for ourselves. And so we just want to come before you and, and just tell you we need you. We need you to provide for us. We, we see how you provided for the greatest problem we ever had, which was our separation from you because of sin through Jesus Christ. We've seen that act of love. And would you just remind our hearts that you will also be for us in all of these other things, that you care about our finances. And, and when we risk being generous, you will provide. And, and you care about our time when we risk being generous. And we risk being generous with our talents and our possessions. You will provide. May we be a people who just live daily dependent on you to provide. We'd ask that you do this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please visit us at www.redseachurch.org or contact us at info at redseachurch.org.